Good morning. Psalmist says in 122, and I'll say this morning that when it was said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord, I was glad. (laughs) And of course, now with Jesus having ascended to the throne and given us his Holy Spirit, his presence is in us such that wherever we go, we bring his presence. So if we're in a cafeteria, if we're in our living room, if we're in the, 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 the auditorium, the gymnasium, the presence of the Lord is here, and I am grateful today to be in the house of the Lord. Anybody else? Um, now, Psalm 118 says, I'd be remiss if I didn't cite that chapter, verse 24. You can say it with me if you know it, that this is the day that the Lord has made, and we rejoice and we are glad in it. Thankful to see all of your smiling faces here in our new digs just for the week. Uh, they are finishing the floors over in the auditorium and in the gymnasium just for us. Uh, yeah, we give it up for them. The teachers happen to be coming back and the students in a couple of weeks, so they'll benefit, but uh, they hooked us up. No, this, this school administration has been so gracious to us. And they are incredible partners. Um, uh, they... I know they've gone, it's, it's a hectic time, having worked in schools for a bit, this is a crazy time of the year, and they were so gracious this week in letting us on the floor that they just finished and moved their tables around that they just rearranged in the new design for this year. Um, so I just want to say a prayer for them briefly and encourage you to pray for not just them, but the kids who will be coming back to school across the city and the county and the homeschool and wherever kids are going to get their education. Lord, thank you for the next generation who we believe aren't just leaders of tomorrow, but today said to Timothy, Lord, don't, don't be despised. Don't let people despise you because of your youth. God's put something in your mouth, and we know there is something in the mouths of babes to be uttered for the betterment of our community, and we pray as the school year begins, those imparting knowledge to them would be refreshed and energized and patient and compassionate and kind and humble, as it says in Colossians 3, and that students coming back, no doubt coming back, bringing things with them that they would find a sense of your presence in pockets of this space so that they can be comforted as they learn. Thank you for the graciousness, the grace of those here who have partnered with us, and we pray that you'd refresh them as they refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to continue praying. I think God has positioned us here um, to serve, to worship on Sundays, yes, but to serve uh, this community. And so we'll be doing so in ways that he he leads us to do that. Um, Thank you to those live streaming as well uh, for joining us. Thank you for who are sitting here for choosing to spend an hour of your time and worship with us today. Thank you to the volunteers who every week come early, stay late to ensure that we have what we need to, to have service. And today there were several additional steps that we needed to take to be here. And I think it was the largest setup team that we've ever had. So thank you to those who were able to be here. Amen. Amen. Uh, I consider myself a minimalist and, and, and am totally infusing that. So while I know we could have like five trailers because we've been there where there's stuff to have, we have one in a shed. And just with the one and the minimalist approach that we've tried to take here, there are still hands and feet are needed to, to move things. And so thank you again for that. And if you have a moment afterward and you want to hang out and eat bagels and fruit while moving some tables, we'll welcome that as well. Um, I want to pray a bit uh, pointedly. Well, first off, I see some faces I haven't seen. My name is Paul, and I am privileged to serve as pastor of this congregation, and it really is awesome to see every single one of you. Um, I want to pray also pretty pointedly for our city. Chase mentioned it. Uh, Taylor 
uh, <coughs> referenced today and tomorrow being the anniversary of when white supremacists uh, were here and there were rallies and acts of hatred and racism um, where three individuals lost their lives, one of them at the hands of a white supremacist, and her name is Heather Heyer, and so we want to remember her as well as pray for even the secondary trauma of those perhaps sitting here who witnessed firsthand those events, those who were the first responders who cared well for those who were injured, even those involved in the legal proceedings, no doubt that extends to this day in terms of secondary trauma that we all might experience on some level. Um, and so, Lord, we invoke your presence even more in this moment, in this city, in Charlottesville, where there's been loss of life that we certainly remember, and the loss of identity and so many other things, God, that we are still grappling with as a city in terms of recovery. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit <laughs> that we trust and believe in, and may we, through you, be the hope that you desire for us to still have in a place filled with doubt, perhaps, about what you still want to accomplish through your people in this space. I pray that your perfect love would cast out all fear and just displace it, and that you would give us the mindset to be diligent in our pursuit of justice through the lens of Scripture. We confess today even the ways that we may have contributed and contribute to an unhealthy or unhealthy aspects of the climate here in our community. And thank you, according to 1 John, 1 John 1 and 9, that says you're faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so today afresh, we confess and ask you to fill us and open up our eyes to the ways that we can advance your kingdom here in this community in the way that it's needed through Scripture. May we be part of that movement. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. <clears throat> We're going to look at chapter 18, verse 1. And if you found that already, can we give it up for the worship team as well, who came into a space where acoustics and all of that is very, very different. And uh, we appreciate you so much, so much. I said the other week, man, we don't have to, you know, I can listen to a good video and, and watch a good video, but I'd rather not <laughs> watch a video for worship. We can, so I'm thankful every week that we get to hear what I believe are not just some of the most competent in terms of their skill set, but also the character and disciples of Christ, which is how we have approached uh, who stands up here and leads you in worship. So, 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, verse Verse 1, uh, it says, after David, this is the NIV, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Lord, help us as we study. We're in the second week now of our series, Teammates Matter. Um, all month we'll be talking about that next week, before I forget at the end, because I probably will. We're going to have a real, real treat in Pastor A.J. Mosley who's the executive pastor down at uh, Divine Unity Community Church in Harrisonburg, which is a sister church of ours. They have an amazing JMU campus ministry and just a phenomenal, uh, he is a phenomenal man of God, as well as Chris Johnson, who is the senior pastor there. And so he's going to come and also speak uh, in line with this series. But today, um, as a part of this series, uh, the title of today's message is Teammate Goals. Teammate Goals. Um, I probably not like, unlike many of you, have been a part of a lot of teams. 
church teams, uh, sports teams, work teams, PTO teams, um, family teams, marriage teams, etc. And in those teams, I've had some really awesome teammates, great ones I want to be around, and some that if they quit, I'd be all right. <laughs> right? Like, if I'm being honest, it'd be all right if you left. Uh, but, and I feel I'm not alone in that. But regardless of even the kinds of teammates we have, I know God's called us to be the kind of teammate we'd want to have, right? And, and I think some of the obstacles in life that might get in the way of that, uh, well, first of all, 1 John 2 and 16, I always think of first, uh, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life get in the way, and that might come in the form of schedules, um, in the form of envy or jealousy, um, and you fill in whatever blank for you, might be the obstacle that gets in the way of your being and my being the kind of teammate to the teammates God has given me um, in life. But the question that I really want us to reflect upon this morning is, um, what does it take for teams to thrive in the kingdom of God? And I want to highlight three things from this text um, toward that end, so that we can highlight more. One is proper fear. Two is unwavering loyalty, and three is great mercy. Proper fear, unwavering loyalty, and great mercy. And we'll kind of look at two sets of teams. One would be King Saul and David, and then the other would be David and uh, Jonathan. And the prayer is that it would not only be, well, that it would be encouraging, perhaps instructive on some level, such that we approach our engagement with the teammates God has given us with a refreshed sort of space and mind. For some context, um, the book of 1 Samuel, the books actually, 1 and 2 Samuel, are written to tell the story of the establishment of the covenant of kingship with David. Okay? Um, it was written by Samuel, who's a prophet born to a woman named Hannah, who for some time had her womb closed, and then God decided to open it, and her firstborn was Samuel, that she named as such, as she says, because she asked God for him. And Samuel, in the third chapter of 1 Samuel, was anointed by God as a prophet. And a prophet is just to speak, not just to, to speak the mind and the words of God. And it says in that chapter that his words never fell to the ground and that all of Israel would hear his words. But then Samuel, the anointed one, leading people of Israel in chapter 8, was asked by the people of Israel to be given a king. Samuel's a bit displeased with this. He goes to the Lord and says, Lord, they're asking me to appoint a king. Now, you have to picture there was centuries, if you will, of failed leadership, if we look at the judges period, right? So they're kind of coming to him with that as a backdrop. Give us a king to lead us. He's upset. He goes to the Lord. The Lord says, give them what they want. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Not opposed to giving a king by any stretch, but he recognized this isn't so much your, or rather you're kind of looking for an external sort of solution to a problem that's an internal one. Like you're looking for a king instead of saying, maybe we ought to renew the faith that we have in Yahweh, in God, as a part of this healing process. But God said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Give him what they need. How many of us might at times, just as a short parenthetical, look to external solutions for what might be an internal issue that God wants to speak to? So chapter 9, Samuel anoints Saul um, as king. Chapter 10, he's made king. Chapter 11, he's confirmed as king. And then Saul's response 
in verse 21 of the ninth chapter is kind of reflective of where his heart was at the time. He says something to the effect of, why me? I'm a Benjamite, smallest tribe. You're coming to me? As if to say, I'm not worthy, which is exactly in some sense the posture that I hope we all have when God knocks on our door and asks us to do something rather than, you know, I have done X, Y, or Z, went to school for it and kind of well positioned. Yeah, put me in, coach. (laughs) Samuel kind of recognized, rather Saul recognized when Samuel anointed him that he was in the mind of God when really he was just, as he said, a Benjamite. I'm begging, really, all of us to have that kind of humility when God calls us to partner with him in any way, which isn't to say that it's a woe is me attitude like we talked about last week, but it's more or less an honest assessment of who we are, where we are, whose we are, and how we might carry out the word that he's called us to. I like to think of the psalmist again in chapter 8, verse 4, where he says, who am I that you are mindful of me? Isaiah says it this way in chapter 6, I think it's verse 5. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe, woe is me. So God came powerfully on Saul in this moment to go and lead as king. And his son Jonathan was actually helping to lead. They would go out and fight battles together. But around chapter 13, we're getting to 18 where our text is today, we start to see Saul rely on his own strength. He's rebuked by Samuel, in fact, for not following the commands of God. Then again in chapter 15, Saul was instructed to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And then he thought, which is where we get in trouble sometimes. I'm not saying don't think and use the brain God's given you, but he thought, let me help you, Lord, because some of this is good. So I'm going to keep here some of this plunder, (laughs) but check it out. I'm going to sacrifice it to you. So holy, right? How many of us at times try to help God out? Did you really? I don't know, Lord, if you had that quite right. Maybe I need to do X, Y, or Z in addition to what you just said. And the question I thought of when I read that is, how did he go from that place of, who am I, this Benjamite? Yes, whatever you say, Lord, to, yeah, God, I hear you, and here's what I think is a good idea. His pride started to get the better of him, and he justified it again by saying, I'm going to sacrifice some of it before the Lord. Samuel's response is an often quoted scripture, which was, Obedience, Saul, is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. I can't help but smile a little bit and digress for just a moment because I remember as a kid, we threw that thing out and nobody knew what we were talking about. Man, you better listen. You know obedience is better than sacrifice. Everybody, you don't know what she's talking about. Nobody got no bulls. What do you, what? That's the context of it all, which I found out last night. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, but I'm like, man, that would have helped us back then. He's trying to sacrifice things. He's doing something. He's, no, just obey. What is God saying to you and to me where he just wants you to listen and obey what he is saying? Yet we do have spaces in our brains, even if we're not sacrificing bulls and so forth, and our behavior and our bodies where we justify our behavior and at times even say, but it's holy, right? Like, I'm doing it for you, Lord. And God is saying, I told you, just be obedient. Saul was really in a dangerous place dangerous place. And at that time, after being rebuked that second time, it says that he was actually rejected as king, but left in the role. Lord, help me. I don't want to be in anybody's role with the Lord not in it. That's a scary spot. He's still king, 
But the Lord rejected his kingship. And then he said to Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. I'm going to have you anoint somebody else. Saul's still functioning, not really, in this role, but I'm going to have you anoint somebody else as king. So along comes David, the youngest son of Jesse, again, the unlikely of candidates, right? Who, him? God said, yeah, anoint him. He's anointed to be king, though not assuming that role yet. And David, before he would even assume that position, was actually brought into King Saul to play his liar for King Saul when the evil spirit had come on him. And as we know, that music, which is why we love to worship God in music and so many other reasons, helped to relieve Saul of that evil spirit. But we really get to know him, I imagine, in chapter 17 of, verse, of uh, 1 Samuel, rather, when David, again, the unlikely of candidates, goes before the great Philistine Goliath, knocks him dead. After which Saul says, hey, that guy who we knew on some level because he was in the house playing for him, who is he? Whose son is he? Bring him here. Has David come in? No doubt, respecting his exploits and so forth. And that's when we get to chapter 18, verse 1, where it says, before David and Saul even finished talking, that Saul's son, Jonathan, was impressed with David and that his life was bound with his, becoming one spirit with him and loving him as his very self. I want to juxtapose, if you will, Jonathan's proper fear and Saul's improper fear. Because on some level, Saul said, I love what you're doing. I'm going to even promote you to these higher ranks in this army. But on some other levels, he was starting to hate a little bit, get a little bit jealous of what David was able to do. His fear of the Lord, proper fear, was now becoming a fear of man. Which, if I can just preempt some later comments, improper fear on our part can lead to such irrational thinking and thought, which we're going to see in the life of King Saul. So the question again, what does it take for teams to thrive in the kingdom of God? Firstly, proper fear. Jonathan demonstrates immense wisdom in this case. Immense wisdom. Here he is, the son of the king, the one who stands the most to lose, if you think about it, by honoring this other dude who clearly the Lord is working through. But he's the one who says in later verses of the same chapter, take my robe, take my tunic, take my, my, my bow, take my spear. You got it. I recognize, in essence, who my homie is, for those who were here last week. <laughs> I'm so glad. For the last 20 years, I haven't gotten that thought out of my head. Now you get to keep that for the next 20 years. You're welcome uh, for that, um, even if you can't actually say it, because it's probably weird to say. But he knew his homie, and he embodied, Jonathan did, Proverbs 9 and 10, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He just heard about David. I don't even know. We don't know how well he knew him, but he saw the God in him and what was happening through him and said, I'm going to love him like I love myself. Conversely, fear of man will drive you to do some crazy things, as I mentioned. When our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, we can get distracted by so many different things. And we're going to highlight one here in a second. It says in verse 6 that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that the woman came out to meet King Saul from all over the town singing this song. And these are the words. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. I should probably leave that alone, but it's really hard because I think back to high school when I was a counselor there. And whenever there were problems between dudes, it always ended up being because of a girl. Not the girl's fault. I'm messing up already. Not the girl's fault. That's not what I'm saying. But 
They knew what they were doing. They went to meet King Saul with that song. David is, Saul is slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Saul? <laughs> I have pictures of my nephew, of a, of a student that I worked with who had this dude up against the wall. I mean, the football player, big dude, and had him by the neck. And when we started talking, I said, oh, man, this is about so-and-so. Girls were singing this song a long time ago, and, this, and, and <laughs> they know what they're doing. It's not their fault. I know that's a problematic narrative on so many fronts, but go with me on some of the humor I think we can extract from that, <laughs> hopefully. Saul loses it, though, right? He loses it because he then, after hearing that, throws a spear at my man David, the same one he just promoted, the same one whose exploits he's admiring. Now he's trying to kill him because of the fear that was no longer proper had become improper. But proper fear, unlike the improper fear that's often accompanied by irrational thought and irrational behavior, proper fear, 1 Samuel 23 and 16, leads us to helping our teammate find strength in God. That's what Jonathan did for David at his weak point. He said, you know what? I stand the most to lose. I'm even willing to put my life on the line, but I'm going to help you find strength in God because I see what God is doing in and through you. Proper fear. Secondly, in order for teams to thrive in a kingdom of God, unwavering loyalty is needed. Um, it's really a gift to have people in our lives who are loyal. Friends. My dad used to say, if you have one good friend, I'm like, Dad, it's kind of lonely, man. <laughs> one good friend? And I got older, I thought, oh, I got you. Like that one, that, that friend, you know. You know. Anything goes down, they're there. I've been blessed with a few, and I'm grateful for that. College buddies and folks from my childhood who, if they were here today, they would tell stories of how you couldn't mess with little Polly. Um, don't call me that, by the way. That's true. <laughs> I just realized what I did. That's reserved for a select few folks who knew me when I was like, you know, in diapers. But you couldn't mess with little Paulie. We protected each other. We were committed to each other. We guarded each other, had each other's back. Remember there was a guy from around the corner from the church, just particularly in the church community, who wanted to flex on me for some reason. There was a reason, but I didn't know. <laughs> and they can't, and they was like, you know, what are we going to do here? Like, that's how we had each other's back. Unwavering loyalty in the face of danger. And I was thinking about this in preparation for today, and I thought, man, this is a digression, but I'll tell the story. There was one reason that that unwavering loyalty began to waver, and it was when a certain lady who used to run the youth program, Mary, doctor, who might be listening because she does from South Carolina. I love you, Mary. She's my godmother. And she had this paddle, and it was a paddle. And the paddle came out when you were acting up, and she would tear into your behind. That's, I'm just telling what was. If go about doing what you do. And on this path, like you didn't, so the, the unwavering loyalty I just spoke to was out the window. Little Paulie did it, <laughs> right? <laughs> get him, get him. And Mary would have our names on it. I mean, just like the whole thing. I won't tell you how many times my name was on that little paddle, but that was the one thing that could break that. I love you, Mary, if you're watching. I appreciate your love. Uh, and loyalty. She loved us well and loved us deeply. And the only one in the church, actually, who had the permission to, to mom and dad gave her permission to do that. Oh, uh, and uh, while I'm digressing, I will come back, I promise. But I can't also help thinking about Mary and my biological mom, even. This is all in this is Bible. Oh, uh, you know, that verse in the Bible that talks about the woman is the weaker vessel. 
man, from a kid, I knew something was wrong with that. Because I'm like, there was nothing weak <laughs> about those moments. <laughs> oh, and in all seriousness, we're going to discuss Ruth and Naomi, like, in a couple of weeks. And that relationship, there's, there's, I knew, even then, I wasn't a theologian, and to some extent, I feel like I'm not now. I'm still just learning, trying to grow. But I'm like, let me go behind the text, under the text, around the text, the context. What is it? Because there's nothing weak about woman. Anyhow, <laughs> unwavering loyalty. And Jonathan kind of referenced it a bit with proper fear, so we'll move a bit more briefly through this. He had everything to lose. He stood to lose the most. He's a son of the king. He could be thinking about, I'm next. He could be thinking about, this is my dad who was telling me in chapter 19, if you go further, go and kill David. My father is telling me to do this. He had the most to lose. And yet it was Jonathan who said, dad, hey, what did he do? Why are you chasing after him? To which Saul said, here's another spear for you. Tried to kill his own son. Jonathan put his life on the line for his teammate, unwavering loyalty to his teammate. He didn't even know what the disciple Matthew had written in chapter 19, I believe, in, in Matthew, where it talks about leaving your houses and your mother and your father and your brother and your sister for my sake, and I'll give you a hundredfold and you'll inherit eternal life. He didn't even know about it, and yet he's embodying it here. Man, if that doesn't challenge you, Lord, what is it in my life that gets in the way of me honoring the will of God? Because that's what he saw happening with David, such that he was willing to face what could have been an obstacle to his being a good teammate, his dad, and say, why? What are you doing? Risked his own life, which also made me think, man, I love the people of God, but I am not ready to die for y'all yet. Like that, I was like, whoa, um, I'm not. You should know that. Let's just be real. There's one person sitting on the front row and three little crumb snatchers running around. I'm good. Uh, but I did pray when I had that thought, Lord, help me to die to myself. I think that is a bigger picture. How do I die to myself as I serve those in my sphere of influence? What does it look like when I'm a little tired to get up and go to the hospital and see somebody who might need me? What does it look like to hop on a Monday night prayer call when my favorite, I don't even know what comes on TV anymore. Everything's Netflix and Hulu. What does it look like to get on a 20-minute call and just say, in part because my teammates are there and might need me to pray with them for them? You fill in the blank. The meal train that was set up for our brothers and sisters who had a baby. How do we die to ourselves so that we can un not waver in our loyalty for our teammates? Let's shift to the third and final point. When we think about what teams need or what it takes for them to thrive in the kingdom of God, the last thing I want to talk about is great mercy. Proper fear, unwavering loyalty, and great mercy. David, while being sought by King Saul twice, had the opportunity to take him out. First time, Saul chases after him, ends up in a cave where David and his men were deeper into the cave. Saul's relieving himself, the Bible says. David sees Bible says, isn't this the moment spoken of where the Lord delivered your enemy into your hands? He goes, cuts a corner of Saul's robe off. And then he was conscious stricken about the fact that he did that. I thought to myself, my goodness. First of all, if I'm catching a brother who's after me, trying to kill me, we're cutting off a whole lot more than his robe. Can we be honest about that, right? Whatever that looks like, right? You're not carrying spears to work, I hope. But, you know, 
<laughs> you got ways, right? You got ways to set foot. You, you know, somebody's been after me and I got a chance now to dig a deeper hole under you than what you did under me. How tempting would that be? He was conscious stricken because he cut a piece, as he put, of the Lord's anointed. He recognized the God who still loved him even though he was rejecting God. Man, God, help me. What does mercy look like for us in our everyday experience? Conscious stricken? I'm conscious stricken because I didn't inflict more pain. Not that I didn't just cut off a piece of his robe. And then the second time in the desert, chapter 26, after apologizing to David, Saul saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to kill you. He goes after him again, runs after him again, and again it happens. David catches him sleeping because the Lord put him and all his people in a deep sleep, which for me, I'm always asking questions of myself, parenthetical, God, when you put my enemies in a deep sleep, what do I do? Put him in a deep sleep. He went, took his water jug and his spear so that he would know again, Saul would, the mercy of God has visited you again today. Whatever our sphere of influence, I beg us, think about how the great mercy of God extended to us first can be extended to those in our influence, which is not naivete or stupidity or letting people walk all over you. That's different. There's an assertiveness and a flipping over tables in the temple kind of attitude that we can also have. And there's that space where we can love people by not doing to them what they deserve. And I think there are two reasons we can remember that importance. One, of course, is that the God that loves you still loves them and wants to win them. How might you be a part of that? The second is just thinking about the many mercies every single day, certainly over 2,000 years ago when we should have died. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We sinned. The wages of that behavior was to die. And Jesus said, you know, you deserve it, but guess what? I'll take it. If you did nothing else, that's some love. That's some great mercy. In view of God's mercy, Romans 12 said, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. So in view of that, we can have some great mercy with those who might be after us that God might even put before us, not <laughs> for us to get back, but to say, and I'm going to love you in this space. You can raise the hand on the altar of your heart, but both of mine are raised high for a lot of different reasons. When I think about how difficult how difficult it is to even sit and watch a film about something that's happened. Because I'm thinking, mercy? God, help us. Help us. In view of your mercy, in view of your mercy, to offer that. What does it take for teams to thrive in the kingdom of God? One, proper fear. Two, unwavering loyalty. And three, great mercy. Let's pray.